Well, my friends, good news for you today. You don't have to listen to me teach, which is fantastic for everyone. Uh, the good news is we have somebody uh, much better who uh, is an esteemed colleague of mine. She has been uh, a Bay Area pastor uh, for many years, and she... I just asked her at the table, sir, are you retired? And she just kind of laughed. Uh, but she, <laughs> she is retired from uh, pastoral ministry, uh, but now she's on, you know, making the rounds with this book that she uh, has written and collaborated with. And uh, we're just so thrilled to have Katie Choi Wong with us today. And Stephen is going to kind of help her with, along with the interview just to make it a little different. So please welcome Katie Choi Wong. Thanks, guys. Hopefully this will be more teaching from Katie than uh, uh, James Lipton uh, interview style. Um, Building Lasting Bridges is the name of, of the book that Katie co-authored, and we're just delighted to have her with us. Katie and I had a chance to visit last week for a little more than an hour and, and share some stories and kind of put together some thoughts for... Uh, for you all today, we'll let Katie do uh, most of the teaching. I'll try and learn and listen, which is a theme we had from last week's Black History Month event that we had. Um, just thanks for, for coming out on a beautiful day, hopefully with a nice drive up here. God's sun is shining on us. Um, let's start with your story and how the book came about. Okay. Well, I want to say thank you for having me here. Um, I was telling Pastor Pete, it was probably a number of years here, and there wasn't any buildings here. And <laughs> so um, some of you might have been here for, for a while, too. And it's good to see all of you and see friends and, and um, meet new people. Um, well, my story, I, I'm, uh, mm -hmm. I like to start off with this. I was born in China, town. USA. <laughs> I was. I was born in Chinatown, San Francisco, at a, a Chinese hospital, which is a very historic hospital because it was the only hospital that Chinese could go to. Um, they established it because there were no other hospitals that were, uh, where Chinese could, were allowed to, to use, so they established their own. And that was way back in the 1800s. And that's the hospital I was born in. <laughs> um, and that's the hospital my mother was born in, too. My mother was born here um, in San Francisco also. So I, I guess it depends on what, how you describe it. Uh, but my, fa my father came from China when he was 14. So I could be uh, second generation or third generation, depending on which side you do. Um, and so I grew up. Uh, First born in Chinatown, but we moved shortly after I was born, when I was still a very little girl, to a neighborhood in San Francisco close to Haight-Ashbury. How many people have been to Haight-Ashbury? One of those hippies and all that. <laughs> but anyway, um, the area that we grew, I grew up in in elementary school years was a black neighborhood. And uh, it was an interesting experience because there wasn't very many Asians there. Uh, my school was like 95% black, and um, so I grew up with, with that culture there, um, but also feeling an outsider, 
because I was very different, right, from everybody else. Um, then after we moved, in fifth grade, we moved to South San Francisco, which was an Italian uh, city at that time. And so I went to a school with mostly Italians. And then, you know, again, I felt like I was in the margins and, and kind of on the outside. Um, and, um, but I was still, I started attending First Chinese Baptist in San Francisco. So it was, it was really a strange experience for me because I always felt like an outsider um, and always had a perspective of being an outsider. And the only time I felt comfortable was at church, at First Chinese Baptist, and that's where I was baptized. Uh, but growing up, I, I never, so I was never with people who were, looked like me. I never had seen that in the media, um, like on TV, on movies, and uh, even the dolls I played with, I played with Barbie, okay? And that's the only dolls they had. They, I didn't have any dolls that looked like me. And so um, I always felt different, and I always felt like, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me. I'm not like everybody else I see on TV. Uh, my family wasn't like people on TV. I mean, I, I watched Leave It to the Beaver, and, you know, I, and people would say, parents would say, I love you uh, to their children. My mother and father never said that. They never said that. But I knew they loved me because they gave me food and clothing and so forth. Um, but it was never expressed that way. And so I think I learned very early on to, um, I had this conflict, excuse me, this conflict in myself of, what I call internalized racism. Because I began to feel ashamed of who I was, um, because I wasn't like anybody else. And especially in high school, when dating was a big thing, right? And, and I was short, I was Chinese, I was flat-chested. <laughs> you know, I don't have double eyelids, you know? And, and so, you know, I never got dates. And I said, you know, it's, it's just, it's, I wasn't the beauty of what everyone says is supposed to look like, beauty looks like. And so I struggled with that. And it wasn't until college that I began to embrace who I was at SF State. I went to grad, I graduated from there. And that was right after the um, civil rights when ethnic studies began, and that's when I learned about my own culture, and I began to appreciate it. So that's kind of how my journey was. Um, so I've always been, had that perspective of, of different cultures, um, and so when um, I began to do my ministry, when I became a minister, I worked for national ministries in American Baptist Churches USA, and I worked with a very multicultural unit. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, and from there, you know, I learned a lot about other cultures. And then I began, when I moved back here to California, I began to work in, I was an area minister for 15 years. And in that area that I had, East Bay area, um, half my churches were black churches. And I was the first woman to be an area minister. And so, so learning the, the culture and navigating some of the, some of the dynamics was there. Um, so from that experience and then relating to others from other denominations uh, in an intercultural way, um, been doing 25 years of intercultural training. And this is mostly with a lot of the Methodists. Uh, we started an institute called I Relate Institute to help ministers who are ministering to other cultures in other words, Methodists had a 
uh, had, had a, a way of, they appoint their ministers, and they purposely appointed ministers that were from one culture to go into a church that's a different culture. So you have a black church ministering a Chinese church, or a Chinese uh, pastor administering a white church. And, and they did that on purpose because they were trying to break the racial barriers. But they didn't realize when they did that that there's more to it than just putting people in. <laughs> and, and misunderstandings and conflicts started to happen. So they needed some people to help train the pastors and congregations. And so I Relate was formed. And so the authors of the book that I wrote this book with are my colleagues for over 25 years in doing this. So Dale Weatherspoon is a black pastor and currently still a pastor. Uh, and then uh, Lucille McSpadden is, has PhDs in cultural anthropology. And you, you'll learn more if you read the book. But the book came about because um, Judson Press asked me to update a book I wrote in the 90s. And it was just a small little booklet about intercultural work. And this one, that they said, we want a, a more bigger book. So that's how that came. Sorry, took a long time. Oh, oh that's great. And the, the, your co-authors are also, you're from three different generations? Yes. Right, uh, Shan is in her 80s. Um, I'm, in, I'm 70, <laughs> going to be 70. And then um, Dale is uh, late 50s. And that's, we'll probably maybe come back to some of the okay. geographical, multi-generational, um, getting to kind of the views uh, that we learn in our own family mm -hmm. households. And then you talked about like Barbie and the, the television and how the, the, the water that we swim in and our societal right. water, right. how getting back to the Bible and the Bible stories that we talked about, the woman at the well, and then Peter and Cornelius kind of address what we talked about is you use those right. often to talk about our own views and societal views. So right. if you could expand on that. Yeah. Um, well, I have a few slides, so I'm going to go skip over to the, the story did, line. Did I, did, I get, did I get too far? Yeah, a little bit far. That's <laughs> OK. Um, let me just go, before I get on to the, the story, just really briefly, um, I just want to say that when we get into this uh, into the whole area of intercultural work, and, and, there, and, and God really has a plan for that. Um, there's a lot of assumptions, and, and I wanted to just share real quickly some of the assumptions. Uh, we assume positive intent, that when people get into it, they really want to have genuine relationships with each other. So we, we assume that everyone is going into this with, with great intention. Um, we also assume that we're the learners and the others are the experts. We, we can't possibly know everything about every culture. So we're learning from others. We assume that we will make mistakes. And that's an important one because it's not if we make mistakes in, in our relationships with other cultures. We will make mistakes. But there, there's a thing that we, we have, an exercise uh, in intercultural um, relations that says, Please forgive me if I make a mistake. Let me know so I can learn and I won't do that mistake again. So it's, it's a way of giving permission for the other person to say, what you just did offended me and this is why. And, and so you get to learn about that. But it also says, ah, we can have honest relationships with each other and we can learn from each other. And we assume that um, it's going to be a lifelong journey. Uh, it's going to take uh, our whole life. I, I'm still learning constantly. And then we assume that God is in it. You're not alone in this. 
So I just wanted to share that because I think that's really important. Uh, these are just some of the chapters that, that uh, are in the book. Um, God's going to go through that really quickly, but I'm just going to go get to that. <laughs> God's story. Um, God, God's story is that we're, we're in a very diverse world, and all of us human beings are never alike, right? I mean, look at, look at each other. Do we all look alike? <laughs> and even twins are not alike. You know, they, they have, you know, because of environment and, and so forth, they're different. They're not the same. None of us are the same, and that's the beauty of it. God made us on purpose different. So let's embrace that difference and learn about each other and, and appreciate that and respect that. Um, and then looking at our stories, we all have our stories that shape us, the messages that are given to us as we grow up. Um, and, and what are those stories? We need to hear each other what, what those stories are. Because some of those messages, uh, as we grow up, shape, not only shape who we are, but it shapes how we see other people. So as long as we know how we are shaped, then we know how we also can see other people. And uh, now, to the, oops, sorry. Okay, now I get to the story. <laughs> OK. Um, I wanted to say, I think the Bible stories that, that hit me in this work is um, two of them that really struck me. One is the woman at the well. And I think some of you have been studying that um, story. Um, and, but if, if you look at it from an intercultural perspective, you have to realize that Jesus, on the way from Galilee going to, uh, from Judea going to Galilee, uh, there's a, there's a, a part of the country that's called Samaria that's in between, right? And for um, Jews, they would never go through the most direct route, which is from Judea to Galilee through Samaria, because this, of, of their fear and their um, hatred and their prejudice and their stereotypes of Samarians. They would go around through, you know, through the Jordan River and back into Galilee the long way around. But here Jesus purposely went through Samaria to go to Galilee. So why did he do that? And I think he did it on purpose to say to his followers, his disciples, the Samarians are not to be afraid of. The Samarians are part of God's plan too. They're different from us, and they've been kind of, uh, stereotyped by us by saying that they're, they're uh, unclean, and we shouldn't associate with them, but they are part of God's plan. And so let's go through Samaria and let's meet some Samarians, okay? And I, I say that because uh, when I first started working as an area minister, and half the churches I had were black churches, and most of them were East Oakland, okay? Some of you may know Oakland. And some of them were in Richmond and San Pablo, but majority of them were in East Oakland. And when I first started as area minister, some of my colleagues and even my family members would say, aren't you afraid to go there? Because I would have to go there in the evenings when lay people can meet. You know, we'll have our church meetings and you know, lay people have to work during the day. We meet at night at the church. And so I would go in those areas at night by myself, right? So they said, aren't you afraid? Don't you want them to meet you at the office? where, you know, it's a little safer and, 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 and you know, not as, as dangerous and so forth. 
I said, no, because that's where the churches are. That's where God's people live. That's where God's people have their joys and their concerns and their, and their uh, sorrows, and, and that's their lives. I need to be where they live, where people are, are going to church. And, and so, aren't you afraid? No, because I think God has my back. And I think that's what Jesus was making the point when he says, we're going to go through Samaria. And then I can go on and I can talk about the woman, but I'm not going to do it in this session. And then with Peter and Cornelius, it's the same thing. Peter, Peter had a vision. He had a dream, right? And what did the dream do? The dream kept telling him to eat these unclean foods. That this is what he's been taught all his life. He grew up with from his family, his culture, even his church told him that don't eat these foods, okay? So then his dream says, eat these foods, eat these foods, three times. He wasn't sure what that meant. But then all of a sudden, Cornelius sent his men there, and his men show up, this Gentile. And these gen the Gentiles were considered unclean. And so then it dawned on Peter, oh, maybe God wants me to go with them to a Gentile and bring the word of God to this Gentile family. Do you think about how he had to overcome his biases, his stereotypes, his prejudice, his tradition, what the church taught him in order for him to go and meet Cornelius? He had to overcome all that to do that. And I think those two stories really capture the essence of why we are here doing what we're doing, why this church is doing Black History Month. Why are we celebrating uh, different cultures? Is because God demands that. God is telling us in a dream, in a vision, to stop seeing anybody as unclean or not worthy. So I think that was one of the things from those two stories. Which is beautiful, and, and whenever I've heard Pete talk about this, it's Jesus had to go. When he didn't have to go, but he had to go in here, he had to, as Pete was outlining, stretch, which is what we're trying to do and get, un, get a little uncomfortable, which kind of brings up two things for me. One, the, the tools with which we, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we go forward with, but also um, the, the self-compassion for not getting it right. Um, it's daunting prospect to, to go places where you're uncomfortable, but you have some specific tools yeah. and, and way yeah, to orient ourselves towards doing that. Yeah, I think one of the things about the, the book, um, it has a lot of tools in it, but the, the neat thing about it is um, there's an online workbook that goes with it, and the online workbook is free. I've got free, it. it's free. I've got it. <laughs> All you have to do is go on the website and um, uh, Jensen Press, and then you can you can download as a PDF file. But it's a companion to the book, and there's a lot of tools and exercises. And, and I'm not going to go through them because there's so many in there that, that deals with different things. Um, but to help us to unveil our the messages we have been given, our biases, because we all do. We all grew up in a certain cultures and that and sometimes we don't realize that we have these biases um, but that would help us unveil that but also help us to have other tools of how do you 
bridge that gap between cultures and to be able to have authentic relationships. Uh, one of the big things I want to say that's most important is cultural humility, is to know that you don't have all the answers and you're a learner. And so, you know, there's no one culture better than another culture. But what we are, we're all, you know, we want to learn from each other. And that, that's the biggest thing. Um, and so I think that that's a, the, the important concept to remember in, in the tools. Um, and, and I think one of the things about tools, like anything, if you don't use it, you don't practice it, and you just read about it, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, it, you, you have to practice it. You have to use it. And one of the things I, I like to, I'm a basketball fan, okay? I, and, and I like the Warriors, okay? Um, some of you may not be fans of the Warriors. All are welcome here, especially <laughs> Warriors fans. Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, Stephen Curry, right? How did he become so great? How, how did he, how can he uh, uh, dribble like the way he dribbles? It's muscle memory. In other words, he's practiced it over and over and over again, or shooting the threes, practice it over and over again. It becomes so much a part of him, so natural. It's the same with these tools, uh, any kind of tools. If you don't use them, practice it over and over again, it, it, and it, it becomes more natural as you do. Uh, and it becomes like muscle memory. You begin to, it just becomes a natural thing for you to do as you relate to other people, other cultures. So, so that's the thing about, about tools that I wanted to say. That uh, reminds me, and we had a, I was involved in a beautiful conversation on Thursday, and one of the things that I was grateful for, actually, when I did a suicide prevention course that Bent has put on, Jenny, um, was that with the work that I've been doing with anti-racism, getting comfortable, getting more comfortable, or some comfort in being uncomfortable, mm -hmm. that really, um, I'm more willing to go there knowing I'm going to be uncomfortable, knowing that I'm going to stumble, make mistakes, and be able to go in and say, I don't even know if I'm going to get this right, but I'm willing to try, hopefully, in the safe space with whoever you're with in conversation. And that practice, and we talked about it, whether it could be giving CPR, could be the suicide prevention, um, that, that that takes practice. And, and you used the example of, uh, oh, the airline being on an airplane, and yeah. we hear that. <laughs> you know, do we actually think about the message? Are we now ingrained with, okay, I actually know where the exits are. Yeah. I know where the emergency exits are. I know oxygen mask. I, because we've heard it and we've heard it, and so just engaging for, for me, it's been so helpful to engage in conversations to be like, I never thought of that. Okay, put it away. Let's see if that can come forward when we're engaging. Um, so there's learning the tools, there's getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, but then there's also unlearning. Yeah, yeah. What, you know, that, that's, a, that's the other side. We really need to strip away mm -hmm. some instincts. Right. Yeah, I think, uh, going back to the tools, I think one of the things we want to talk about is preparation. Um, and that's what you were alluding to with, about the airplane. Um, you, you, you you prepare yourself as much as possible. And that's what St Stephen Curry does, all right? He prepare. you don't know what's gonna happen. He doesn't know what's gonna happen in a game. Uh, we don't know what's gonna happen when we get into a, a, a relationship with a person from a different culture. We don't know, but, but you prepare as much as possible. 
And that, that's what hopefully these tools help you do, is that you prepare enough that, that you could take the chance and want to take the chance. Um, I like the story, I have a story in the book, um, some of you may uh, have seen the Indiana Jones, one of the movies where he's on a cliff and he wants to go to the other side, but there's this big chasm in between. And he, he doesn't know, he can't see anything, any way to get to the other side. But supposedly there's supposed to be a bridge to go to the other side, but he can't see it. He can't see it until what? He steps out into what he looks like an <laughs> open space, steps out in faith that there's a bridge there. And once he does that, he sees the bridge. And that's the same thing of what we're doing in, 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 in relationships and building relationships with people of other cultures. Until you make that leap of faith, you're not going to see that bridge to be able to have an authentic relationship with someone who's very different from you. And, and so that's the leap, that's the risk that we have to take. And I think that, that's something that, um, that you know, uh, if we can just take that first step, and then the next step, and then the next step. So it's, it's a kind of progression. Um, but you were saying that uh, the, um, the... Oh, about un unlearning. Unlearning, unlearning. Um, yeah, one of the things that um, learning to unlearn is, is a, I love that title because it means that we have to learn to unlearn all those messages we got growing up. Not only messages about ourselves, but messages about how other people are, other cultures are, especially um, one of the things that um, doesn't surprise me, but there was, a, there was a Burmese immigrant that came and, and um, and he shared, he, and we were doing intercultural stuff, and he shared with me how when he came, how he was uh, afraid of black people. And I said, well, how did you get that message? And he goes, because I said, have you had experience with black people in Burma? And, and he said, no, I've never met a black person. But I am afraid of going to a black neighborhood. I'm afraid to meet a black person. I said. Well, where did you get that? Well, I saw it in the movies. I saw it on television. I saw it in the, the news media. That, you know, uh, all these stories about, about blacks. And so that's what I'm saying. We need to unlearn those messages that have been given to us by society. Um, and, and this is all what I call part of systemic racism. That we, we may... There's three different parts of racism that I have on here. It's a simplified chart, but, but what I'm talking about is that um, we have been given all these messages, and even though we personally am not racist, we are part of a racist system. That we, whether we like it or not, we are part of it. We're part of how people are portrayed in the media. We're part of how books exclude a number of groups of people. We're part of how hospitals administer their health care, taking the word of one group over another. I mean, in the, we're part of the pandemic, where it was not evenly, uh, the, the vaccines weren't evenly distributed. Uh, we're part of uh, how, um, 
how uh, laws have been implemented in this country. We're all part of it, we're part of that history. So we are part of it, whether we like it or not. And so one of the things that we have to do is unlearn what we have been part of so that we could begin to be anti-racist. And, and you know, we all are part of that system. And even those of us who are minorities or who are people of color, we're part of that system too, even though we've been affected by it. I call that internalized racism. When I was ashamed of being Chinese, that's internalized racism. I internalized what the messages were about, about being Asian in this country, not knowing that I was doing that. Uh, my, when my son was three years old, he, he would tell me, I'm not Chinese. <laughs> I said, where'd you get that? <laughs> you know, we read Chinese, we do all kinds. He goes, I'm not Chinese. I'm, not, I'm like those people on TV. <laughs> See, that's inter three years old. He already internalized the message that he was given. So, so that's something that we all have to unlearn. Every single person, those of us who are, uh, who are, um, the, the uh, objects of racism, but also those who have been privileged by racism. Um, and then those who are in power. So, so those are all things that we have to unlearn in order for us to begin to bridge that gap with each other and to see each other who, uh, as God wants to see, have us see each other. A lot, a lot to take in. Yeah. Um, the you've used culture mm -hmm. a lot, and and not race so much. Racism, mm -hmm. yes. But can you speak to mm -hmm. the to give us a little primer on the difference between culture and race? Because it's right. It's it's vast and nuanced at the same right. time. There's a tension there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. Understanding race. You see, race is a social construct. You heard that probably before. It means that there are. Uh, that means that definitions of race and understanding of race depends on where we live and what period of history. For example, at one time, Irish, Italians, and Jews were not considered white. Um, so when we're talking about race, we are talking about ethnicity and culture. And specifically like in the census, right? Yes, and, in the census. And other governmental applications right. and the way that we because just Because the definition boxes. over time, when the census first started, uh, to, to the current, it, the, the categories changed. The categories changed. Um, and, and some weren't even considered human. I mean, you know, talking about the, the slaves, right? They weren't even, they didn't have names. So, um, so it changed. So i give you an example of how, how race is such a uh, nebulous, it's really, we're not really talking about race, we're talking about ethnicity, really, but how race is a social construct. In Mexico, under the Spanish rule, people were classified <clears throat> by their parents' racial or cultural type. In other words, mestizo was someone with a Spanish father and an Indian mother. Mulatto was someone with Spanish and black African parents. And they have a lot of other categories, depending on who your mother was and who your father was. And, and that would define your race in Mexico. In 1976, Brazil decided to do a study and asked the participants to name their race by their skin color. 
And the people came up with 134 categories of race. So you see, race is, is, is by color especially, is, is not a real thing. If you think about who's black in this country, well, you could say some people from East India are really black, some of them, South India especially, right? Um, or Hispanics can be white, black, even Asian. Uh, you know, so it, it's, you can't go by skin color, but that's, that's what we do in the United States. So how do you categorize race? You really aren't talking about race, you're talking about cultures and ethnicity. That's what you're really talking about. There's so much we could spend a lifetime studying it and <laughs> writing books about it. Um, in terms of the, um, since we talked about this a little bit before, the, we, we, we learn from an individual, we listen and learn, we hear about their experience, and we're curious, but then we want to have guardrails, as I understand it, on not applying that too broadly to somebody else that may look like them, but is of a different age or a different geography, uh, say um, Detroit or Chicago or the South, but then even in the Bay Area, we have such a diversity of experiences of folks from different cultures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's difficult to hold on to, right. and yet we want to stay curious and, and take the lessons that we learn from an individual and get curious about others. Yeah. I think we have to be careful about um, categorizing everybody um, in the same, uh, that everyone have the same experience or the same culture. Uh, for instance, during the pandemic, one of the big things is um, anti-Asian hate. And I have to say that, you know, my husband and I have that incident before, too. I mean, we were, we'd take a walks at night after dinner, and we're walking in San Francisco. San Francisco has a huge population of Asians. But we're walking down the street in our neighborhood, which has a big population of Asians, and a car comes by running out, uh, and a, a man rolls down his window and says, Go back to China, you know, <laughs> because they're accusing us of carrying the disease to this country, and and we know that it didn't people didn't discriminate between Thai and Korean and uh, you know uh, and Chinese and Japanese that we, that that any of these groups were labeled the Chinese who brought the virus, right? Um, a recent one was just at the NBA um, All-Star Game. Um, one of the, the big stars that, that's in one of the Marvel movies. They had a picture of him, and a, th there's this thing they were doing all over about celebrities, about look-alikes. So they had a picture of him on the screen, and then next to him was a, a another Asian man, I don't know if he's Chinese, but another Asian man with glasses, and and he looked pudgy and so forth. If you know the, the guy that played um, um, in uh, Simi, Simi um, Lu, he's, he's very handsome, very muscular and so forth. They put the two pictures there, they look alike. So again, they say, all these Asians look alike, right? And I, and I will laugh and say, well, all you white people look alike. <laughs> you know, but, but you know, th th not at all, they don't even look alike. But, but, you know, uh, and, and uh, so, so I think that part of it is, is that we have to be careful about how we put everybody together. Um, I think you had a, 
a group of high school young people uh, last yes. Saturday, right? Yes, we did. And, and they're, they're all black, but they were all from different communities. One was two from Can American Canyon, one from uh, Napa, Napa. And, I, and I think one from Hercules. One from Her Originally, all going to the high school now. All say, going Canyon. to the same high school, but they all have different experiences, and, and they're, they're not all the same. And so we need to be careful not to categorize everybody as the same, okay? And find out really what, and they may, and because they grew up in different cultures, they may have different opinions and, and different experiences. Um, and, and so we need to be careful about that. One of the things that, um, uh, you know, and, and for, for me being an Asian, one of the things I always get all the time when I travel in other parts, not so much California, but other parts of the United States, was um, they always assume I'm an immigrant. And, and they always say, do you speak English? And I say, yes, I do. And then they ask me where I'm from. And I say, well, I'm from San Francisco. No, before that. I said, well, I was born in San Francisco. They said, no, no, before that. You know, it's, it's, it's this, this categorizing whole groups of people that we have to be careful not to. And, 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 and differences in, in generations. You know, we have this exercise in the book um, called The Five Circles of Identity. And, and it, it, these identity points shape us of who we are and our perspective of ourselves and of other people. And one of them, the outer circle, which we don't touch on too much in the book, but it's called the era that the era, the time of history that we live in has shaped us too. So generations are affected by what has shaped us. So for instance, um, the World War II generation, that's my father generation, was shaped by World War II and the Depression. And then you had our generation, my generation was shaped by Vietnam. And then you have uh, another group uh, that, you know, the young people today were shaped by the pandemic and the, um, the economy and, you know, and that shapes how they see things and see the world. Um, we are, our, some of our older generations are shaped by being in more uh, homogeneous communities. Today, more and more of our communities are very diverse. And the young people are growing up in diverse communities, diverse schools, diverse churches. We didn't have that before. People used to say the most segregated time of the, of, uh, on Sunday morning is in the churches at 11 o'clock. You know, that's changed, right? I mean, but before, everyone went into their own silos. So, so we have to be very careful uh, of not categorizing everybody as the same. And, and, and one of the biggest things in there, and then one of the exercises and tools, is how to listen how to listen to one another and, and believe what we hear. I think that's the biggest thing. People don't be always believe what they hear. They say, oh, that can't be true. Um, we had a, a Laotian man, a refugee family that came to one of our churches and the church was predominantly white. And they said, oh, when you come, and there's a market down the street you can walk to and they're wonderful people. We've been going there for years. They, they, you love them. So the Laotian, family went there to buy things, and they were treated badly. And so when they told the person who recommended the market, the person said, no, that's not true. They're wonderful people. They can't, they, they, 
They didn't treat you badly. You must have misunderstood, right? I mean, we got to believe the realities of the people that we're engaging with. Okay. <laughs> I, could, I could be here all day with you. Um, the, as we, we have our tools and we have our methodology to hold on to them, be curious, be generous, listen, um, shed um, our biases, unlearn some of the systemic, well, all of them as much as we can. Um, then we're working towards allyship. Mm -hmm. In particular, that's something that I talk about here, um, especially intersectionality with um, black African-American communities since Napa County is about 2.7% black. The city itself is about 1% uh, black, and so we don't actually have an opportunity to practice that much um, because we're not faced with it, and that's a, its own thing um, in this community in particular. But um, we're doing our best to have voices come in and teach us about things by hosting the event, um, by working in a lot of effort that we, we can and, and do in our community the becoming an ally and towards a beloved community. Um, maybe I'll just leave it broadly there. Dr. King has some words about that. I know that you have that quotation in your, in your, in your book. Um, can you speak to that? Do you want me to read the quote? You can Would read you? the quote, it's right there. Um, so this is, it's a little shorter version. Um, As I stood with them and saw white and Negro nuns and priests and on and on, bringing with vitality and brimming with vitality and enjoying a rare comrade trip. I knew I was seeing a microcosm of the mankind of the future in this moment of harmonious and genuine brotherhood. And we've talked about it. I mm -hmm. I see what where we are now compared to 1966. Um, that the 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 quilt kind of the world that we might have lived in in our own self was say, a, a quilt of squares um, with a pretty pattern um, that was understandable. And I myself have kind of shed that idea as I've experienced things, and I see it as a quilt of many different shapes, many different colors, many different textures. And it's not really, the, the pattern isn't that understandable, but the, the thread that that's, keeps it all together, that thread of humanity, um, that's kind of, that's where I've come from my metaphor for, mm -hmm. for this. Um, and that's what, a, how, how do you? Yeah, that's a beautiful metaphor. Um, I, um, uh, I think Jesse Jackson used that too. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, uh, the, the quilt, I, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, we, we all come with our gifts, and I think that's what God is saying to us. That we have our gifts, our talents, our experiences, our cultures, our gifts. And, and I think that's what uh, uh, Bell Hooks, um, in uh, her comment about beloved community, and I love the quote because it says, beloved community is formed not by the eradication of difference, but it's affirmation by each of us claiming the identities and cultural legacies that shape who we are and how we live in the world. To form beloved community, we do not surrender ties to precious origins. Now, we need to embrace who we are, 
but we also need to embrace who others are too. And that's really the bridge that we're trying to build. Um, and, and to build this beloved community is, is, um, is a vision that Martin Luther King Jr. had. Uh, to be able to see what the world could be. You know, we're striving what the world could be. God, what God wants the world to be. Um, and, and because we go out, we're all gonna end up in heaven, right? <laughs> we're gonna see each other for eternity. So let's make our lives here, while we're here on earth, a, a life of, uh, of wonderful discoveries and surprises and, and how we can help each other and support each other. I think that's the, that's the building of the beloved community. And I think that's what you guys are doing here in Napa. I, I really appreciate the, what you are doing here because I think that it, it, start, it may start out small, but it can grow. And you guys are the seeds, the seeds of something being planted here in Napa. Not wine, but <laughs> but the seeds of what God wants to happen here in Napa. And, and you, know, you say you have a very homogeneous community because it's, it's predominantly uh, white, right? White Latina, X. And, but even among your community, it's not always the same, too. You, know, you can start with who you are here because all of you come from different places and you have different experiences. And then you could build relationships with other communities you know, nearby. Um, I, I, I give you an example. I was at a black church and they had a, a special, uh, I guess, uh, event. And they decided to have their, um, their tables by where people came from, you know, where people were born. So they had a Texas table, they had a Louisiana table, they had a South Carolina table, Chicago table, you know. And, and this one black church, which, which, you know, when I came in, I just said, oh, they're all the same. In the sense that they all have, they all from Oakland, they all, you know, are black, they all have probably similar cultural experience. No, they didn't. They explained, no, the Texas people said, no, no, those people from Louisiana, they, they're different. They're not the same as us. <laughs> and, and, oh, South Carolina, no way, you know. And, and they explained to me the difference. I didn't even know the difference. But they knew. They could say, oh, I can tell by her accent. Or I could tell by the way she dresses, that she's from there. Or, or, you know. I said, this is... So even among yourselves, you have different, so if you can learn even to bridge the, the, uh, the, the gaps among yourselves, that's a learning experience that you can bring to even more different cultures. So, so I think that's something that, um, that we can all do. So I just want to say that we are all in this together. It will take time, you know, don't rush it. It will take patience and it will take forgiveness because we will make mistakes. And we may say something or do something that may offend somebody, but we ask for permission to say, let us know so we can learn, and it'll take prayer. And, and so that's what I wanted to leave with you guys. And maybe we can have a prayer. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. Okay. <laughs> All right, if you will join me in prayer, let's pray together. Uh, so God, we're grateful for, man, just a fire hose kind of experience today of uh, just helping us see things in perspective, uh, many stories that I'm sure resonate uh, with us and stretch us.
maybe making us uncomfortable, and yet I just so appreciate uh, Katie's approach and honesty and welcome of everything that this is. So thank you for her work and what she's doing in the world now uh, with this book, and we pray that your spirit just turbocharge uh, what is happening uh, with that, uh, not only uh, in our church with what we're trying to do, but all over the place. Uh, may we become more and more of uh, what you hope for us to be. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing before you go, uh, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which kicks off the Lenten season, which marches all the way to Easter. Um, some of you are technically challenged. It's okay to admit it. If you're Raise your hand if the clock on your VCR is accurate. All right, that tells me that you are antiquated because you have a VCR. So anyway, that was a little trick question. That probably means you would like a print copy of the Lenten thing, which is available on the back table. Uh, otherwise, you're gonna, if you're on my secret pastor's email list, uh, you'll get a PDF version of this. You can just uh, digitize and do whatever you want with it. But that kicks off Wednesday. It's just a little helpful guide to take you week through week, things to think about. And also, Katie will be uh, at a table in the back uh, to sign some books, meet her, say hello to her. So glad you came today. I told her to take a little extra time, so thank you for being so patient. But it was awesome, right? Yeah. All right. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. You're great.